0: Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> Dave was in the news this week. Maybe you heard about Dave. Forty-four years ago, uh, this man named Dave, don't know his last name um, earned himself a parking ticket in Minersville, Pennsylvania. It was $2.70, this parking ticket, 1974, Um, and Dave made news this week because this week he actually decided to pay the ticket, to send in the ticket with his $2.70 payment plus $4 to compensate for inflation since then. Um, Instead of a return address, he put feeling guilty, uh, which implied that his guilty conscience is finally what compelled him to pay this week. Um... Even if we here in this room this morning, maybe most of us haven't been carrying around a guilty conscience about something we did 44 years ago and been having that in the back of our mind all this time, we probably all know the feeling of a guilty conscience. Uh, we feel uncomfortable, feel anguished because you know you've done something wrong, right? The cartoons used to put it this way. They, this is how they used to depict it, right? You've got a devil on one shoulder that's uh, tempting you in the one ear, and then on your other shoulder is this angel that's like rep- supposed to represent your conscience that's telling you what's right and trying to push you toward doing what's right. Um, this idea of conscience is prominently featured in our scripture text today. So that's where I want to spend our time and focus it. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 23? Acts chapter 23. As we're working through the book of Acts, as we have been for some time now, we're finishing up. Couple more months left of Acts here. Um, It's easy to get lost in these last seven or eight chapters of the book following the flow of everything. So, just a quick uh, reminder of where we are. Um, Here's a little summary of the last eight chapters of the book. So, Paul, this is the part of the book that's really focused on Paul's life and following him. Um, He's in Jerusalem, he has been since chapter 21. We heard a speech that he gave to some crowds recently. And after this part in Jerusalem, he's going to stay in captivity. He's under guard, under Roman guard, and be shipped off to Caesarea and then finally to Rome. But where we are today is his second speech in Jerusalem, the speech before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish ruling council there in Jerusalem. It's the same council, actually, that uh, condemned Jesus to death, if you remember. Um, so he's going to go to Caesarea, going to go to Rome. He's going to give all these speeches before all these different groups of Leaders and it can become a little bit seemingly redundant So what we're going to try to do as a preaching team is point out the unique features of each text So we're not just bringing up the same themes every week So a unique feature of this particular text as he gives a speech before the jewish ruling council this week Is the focus on his conscience Paul's conscience and so that's why We're going to just take a look, actually, at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 23 today and focus our time and attention there on this idea of conscience. Would you follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 23? As in looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Of your people. Two questions I think that are raised by this text when it comes to conscience. The first one is, is your conscience clear? And the second one is, is your conscience captive, specifically captive to the Word of God? So uh, we're going to take a look at both of those. We're going to see that Paul's conscience was both clear and captive to the Word of God. And then we're going to finish up with just a case study briefly that comes out of the text itself to kind of tie it all together and make sure it's uh, honed in on our own lives. So first question, is your conscience clear? This morning, think about it. Is your conscience clear? That's where Paul begins in verse 1, making a claim that he's lived his life in all good conscience before God up to this day. And he says it not just kind of offhand, right? He says it with a settled conviction, right? You saw what he says there in the beginning of verse 1. He stopped before he even said anything and just looked at everybody in the room and just stared at them. And then he opened his mouth to speak. brothers. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. doesn't get more sincere than that. But what does he mean? What does he mean in, in all good conscience? Or as we might say, in a, in, with a clear conscience. Uh, what is that all about? Maybe we start with the definition. Your conscience, it's an inward witness to what we believe is right and wrong. Something inside of us that witnesses to what we already believe is right and wrong. So... When we do what we believe is right, our conscience gives us a sense of relief or pleasure, right? When we do something that violates what we believe is right, our conscience, it acts kind of like those pain receptors on our skin that uh, they give us a sense of uh, displeasure or discomfort um, when uh, there's something bad happening, um, so that we know, oh, that's a stove, I should take my hand off of it, right? The conscience does the same thing. It gives us, it inflicts distress on us, and it does, it does that in the form of guilt when we've violated what we believe to be right. So what does Paul mean? What, what does he mean when he says, I've lived my life in all good conscience to this day? I think what it has to mean is that as he stands before this council, he's claiming that that day and every day before, apparently, he said, to this day, he has not been carrying around This guilty conscience, this burden, this affliction of feeling like he has done what's wrong. He, uh, his inward witness is telling him that he is clear. He's okay. So that should raise a few questions for us. Um, I think one question maybe it should raise is how does Paul claim that? How does Paul make that claim, uh, all good conscience? Does that mean he thinks he's been sinless? Like he hasn't done anything that violated his inward witness to what he believes is right. That can't be it, though, because those of you who have read Paul's letters know that he's pretty forthright with his forthcoming with his sin and with the battles he's had with his flesh nature. Um, Maybe he can say that because he's claiming that he's done no big sins, right? So maybe he's saying, you know, yeah, sure, I've had some sin like everybody else, but I don't smoke. I don't drink, I don't sleep around, I don't do any of the big sins, and so my conscience is clear. But those of you who have read Paul's letters know that he doesn't categorize sin that way, ever. He doesn't see it as big sins and little sins. He talks consistently about sin as though all sin is a big deal to God. Actually, when we read Paul's letters, we see that it can't even be some kind of concept that the good outweighs the bad in his life. He doesn't think that way either. So what is it? How can Paul stand before this council and say, I've lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. We could spend a whole sermon just on this point. um, But from Paul's other writings, from the book of Acts, I think there's actually only one understanding of this that makes sense of how Paul thinks about his own life and journey and his conscience. And um, it's something like this. I think Paul's saying something like this. He's saying, I sin just like you, just like everybody else. Um, I'm not perfect. In fact, many of my sins have been really, really big, spectacular sins. But every time I become aware of sin in my life, I repent, meaning that I turn from that sin and walk a different way again. I turn away from the sin and turn toward Jesus Christ. My conscience is clear today as I stand before you because I'm constantly clearing it by going to the Lord with things that uh, I've done wrong and turning and walking another way. There's no unrepentant sin in my life that I'm aware of to this day. I think that's what he's saying. He's claiming that there's no unrepentant sin that he's aware of. So i ask you again this morning, is your conscience clear as Paul's conscience is clear? Maybe some of you would say, I can't have a clear conscience, actually, because my sin is too great. My sin is too great. I could never have a clear conscience after what I've done. Question for you who think your sin is too great to have a clear conscience before God. Is your, is your sin greater than the sin that Paul committed in his life? Here's a man who was rounding up Christian men, women, and children, throwing them in jail, even having some of them killed. This is the same Paul who stands up years later and says, I have lived my life before God in all, all good conscience up to this day. The power of Jesus' blood to save us is so great that there's no sin that you and I could ever commit that would put us beyond the ability to be saved by Jesus' Jesus's blood. Maybe for some of you that's not the issue, though. Maybe for some of you it's more of a hang-up like this. To say that someone would have no unrepentant sin whatsoever in their life, that's, that's unrealistic. Uh, maybe you're thinking, well, we all have areas of our lives in which we're living in unrepentant sin. Nobody lives without unrepentant sin in their life. Jesus is not fully Lord of anybody's life. That's a common view, even among Christians. I had a close friend who uh, emailed me in recent weeks and said something just like that, as if it's something that we'd all agree on. I'm like anybody else, he said. I, I have areas in my life that I know are sinful that I'm doing nothing about at the moment. But I think the belief that we can go on claiming to be Christian, claiming to be followers of Jesus, while harboring and treasuring unrepentant sin in our hearts Uh, is not only a dangerous belief but it doesn't line up with what we see in scripture here's what i mean just a couple examples of many that we could give Uh, maybe you've read the book of first john short book at the end of the bible if you read it through you'll see many verses that sound just like this this is chapter 3 verse 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning for god's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning Because he has been born of God. In other words, we all sin, but if we've been born of God, then we will repent when we become aware of sin in our lives. We just will. That's the evidence that we've been born of God. If, on the other hand, we practice sinning, we make a practice of it, in other words, we continue sinning without repenting, then that shows that we weren't actually born of God like we think we have been. Because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And just one more example. We could go on and on, but this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Maybe you've read this. This is Paul writing to Christians. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if I live my whole life 100% submitted to Jesus, like living life his way, whatever he says goes, I'll do it. Except I've got one little problem. I've got a little thievery problem. And I steal from time to time and I never repent of it. I never plan to change it. I just go on stealing. But everything else in my life is perfect. If that's who I am, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, to Christians in Corinth, right? We could do a 10-week series on passages that say the same thing and not hit all the passages in Scripture that talk about this. The bottom line is the Bible teaches that being a Christian involves surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus without harboring any unrepentant sin in our lives. It's a question of who's the Lord of our lives, really. Who's the King in our hearts? One more illustration, maybe just to Help us get our heads around this because I know for some of you this might be a new teaching. Imagine that your heart, uh, like the the command center of your body, not the blood pumping organ, just like the the center of your being, the Bible talks about the heart. Imagine that that has, just to use a round number, a hundred compartments in it. So you've got the compartment of your heart that's for your marriage. You've got the compartment of your heart that's for your parenting. You've got the compartment of your heart that's for your work or your school You've got the compartment of your heart that's for your leisure time and your extracurricular activities. You've got all these compartments in your heart. There's 100 of them, let's just say, to use a round number. And let's say you say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you so much that I want you to have 99 out of the 100 compartments in my heart. You're going to get total control out of 99 out of the 100. You're going to get to do whatever you want. You call the shots, I'll just do it. Whatever you say, no questions asked. 99 out of 100 areas of my life. I'm just going to keep this one for myself. I'm just going to hold on to it and make my own decisions when it comes to that one area of my life. Okay? That's the scenario. Question. Who's the Lord of your life? Multiple choice. Is it Jesus? Because he has 99 out of the 100. 99 is a lot more than one. So he's got the majority. And so he's the Lord. That's option A. Option B. Is it you? Are you the Lord of your life still? The answer is option B, and here's why. The person who's Lord of your life, king of your heart, is the one who stands over that whole heart, that whole operation, and decides who gets this one, who gets this compartment, who gets this compartment. The one who parcels out 99 to Jesus and keeps one for himself, that's the Lord, the one who stands over the whole thing, right? And Jesus, the king of the universe, is not content to be Lord over 99 out of 100 compartments of your heart. He wants to be the actual king of your heart. He wants to lovingly, graciously supplant you from your place on the throne of your own life and take it over. That's following Jesus. That's claiming Jesus as Lord. And that's why Paul can say he has a clear conscience up to this day. He is saying that all hundred compartments of his heart are surrendered to Jesus. Now, You need to listen very carefully to this because this part is, we've got to be crystal clear on this. If Paul's saying that all hundred compartments of his heart are surrendered to Jesus, that does not mean that he hasn't sinned in those areas. In fact, Paul could have sinned in all hundred areas even just this week before he says this. But what he's saying is, when I've sinned in any of those hundred areas in my life, even this week, and become aware of that sin... I've gone to God and repented of it. And I've turned from that sin. I haven't treasured it in my heart. I've walked away from it. That's what it looks like. When I become aware, I turn from my sin. That's what it looks like to have a clear conscience. So I ask you again, is your conscience clear this morning? If you're a Christian and your conscience is not clear this morning because you came here harboring, treasuring some unrepentant sin in your life there's good news this morning you can have a clear conscience when you walk out of this room today actually you can have that clear conscience if you just repent and to repent just one more time means you're walking this direction you stop you stop pursuing that sin you confess it to God you claim Jesus's blood over that sin and then you literally turn and start walking a different direction again that's what it means to repent you can have a clear conscience as you walk out here today So that's the first question, is your conscience clear? Um, But here's the thing. It's not enough to have a clear conscience, actually. It's possible for your conscience to be clear, but you still be in the wrong, as many of us have experienced. Uh, Just because you have a clear conscience doesn't mean what you've done is right. One example. When I was in junior high and high school, there was something called Napster. Who remembers Napster? Yeah. So before streaming music, Um, I think Napster actually does stream music now. But originally, before there was streaming music, this is how all of my friends were getting our music, right? uh, Somebody told me, hey, there's Napster. You can get all your music for free. You just go to napster.com. You pick what songs you want. You press download. And then 15 minutes later, the song will be downloaded because that's how long it took to download a song back then. And the other people in your house couldn't be on the phone or else the download would get interrupted and everything would get all messed up. You'd have to start over. Times you guys don't know about. Um, But so I was just downloading song after song on Napster. I was like, this is great. This is just free music. Any music I want is free. And my conscience, I'm telling you, I was a Christian. My conscience was totally clear about what I was doing. No second thoughts, no doubt whatsoever that I was doing what was right. Then somebody told me, hey, uh, do you know that this is like stealing, right? This isn't actually legal. They're probably not going to prosecute you because it's such a small case. But you're pirating this music, the, uh, the people who made the music aren't getting any money from it, and it's actually stealing. As Christians, we should actually buy music and pay for it somehow. Um, and I was convicted, and convicted to the point where I got rid of all my music that I had downloaded on Napster and started kind of systematically saving up and buying music. Um, so that's just an example of how our consciences as helpful as they are as tools for us, can be clear even though we're doing something that's wrong, right? Um, So we need a second question. The one question of, is your conscience clear, isn't enough. We need to also know, is our conscience captive to the word of God? Um, Let me reread this interaction in verses 2 through 5 of our text between Paul and the high priest so that we can see kind of how this question comes to light in our scripture text. Verse 2 said, The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul, to strike him on the mouth. So Ananias is rejecting the claim that Paul made to have a clear conscience. He does it by striking him. But striking someone who's just in a pretrial hearing when there's been no sentence passed on them, no guilty verdict, that was as illegal then as it is now, right? It's wickedness. It's a perversion of justice. And so Paul names it as such in verse 3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you going to s- sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Um, so Paul uses the same metaphor Jesus uses for the Jewish religious leadership of the day, whitewash, meaning that it's something that's actually corrupt and decaying below the surface, but this whitewash gets put on the outside so it looks clean and new and polished on the outside. Paul also makes a prediction about this Ananias. He says, God will strike you. And that warrants a question from those standing by. That's what happens in verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Where they're coming from is, hey, this is God's representative. If you mock him, you're mocking God in a way. Is that really what you want to do, Paul? And so Paul responds in verse 5 and says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written... You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay? Now, first time I read that, maybe first time some of you read that, it's like, really, Paul? Did you really not know that this was the high priest? I have a hard time believing that. Right? But actually, as I was studying it this week, there are some good reasons why Paul maybe really didn't know that this was the high priest. One, this is a hastily thrown together pre-trial. Maybe the high priest isn't wearing his distinguishing robes. Two, Maybe Paul didn't realize it was the high priest who ordered the striking. Maybe he thought it was somebody else in the room. Three, Paul, many scholars think, had partial blindness, at least partial. And so maybe he didn't, couldn't see who it was. He's been gone from Jerusalem for many years, so maybe he didn't know who the high priest was. There's a lot of reasons why, but bottom line is, Paul says in verse 5, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And then he quotes from Exodus, and the point of what he's saying there is basically, hey, if I had known that this was the high priest, I wouldn't have actually said what I said to him or at least I wouldn't have said it in the tone that I said it in, in the way that I said it, right? And I want to make the case here, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about, about a conscience that is captive to the Word of God. Um, Paul's conscience is clear initially, right? He's feeling great, clear conscience. He even rebukes this high priest and feels great about it still. But then when somebody shares with him this is the high priest, and he thinks back to what the Word of God says in Exodus about how you're supposed to treat the ruler of your people. He says, oh, even though my conscience was clear, I actually wasn't in the right. I actually shouldn't speak evil of a ruler of my people, okay? So he, his conscience is not only clear, but it's also captive to the Word of God. And so he repents, at least of his tone, if not more. He turns from the tone that he was taking and takes on a new tone. That's why the second question that we're looking at, is your conscience captive, is so important. Almost every culture on earth has an idea of conscience, right? This inward witness to what we believe is right and wrong. But this is where Christians differ from the world, from most of our friends and neighbors, and how they think about conscience, this second point. Um, For many of the people we love, the people we interact with each day, They see the conscience as the standard for their life, like the absolute standard. So as long as I'm living my life, they think, consistently with what I believe to be true and right, then I'm good, right? Back in 2004, one example, uh, President Obama was running for Senate, and he was interviewed about his faith and was asked about what he believed sin was. And here's what he said. I want to get the quote right. He said, sin is being out of alignment with my values. Sin is being out of alignment with my values. That is a common perspective, even among Christians. And it really treats the conscience as ultimate, like the ultimate guide for our lives. But according to the Bible, as we've been seeing here, our conscience is actually only a valuable guide insofar as it's submitted to the Word of God and subordinate to the Word of God and being shaped by the Word of God. In other words, if my conscience says that a particular course of action is okay, but the Bible says that same course of action is not okay, the Bible has to win out, no matter what my conscience says. So some of you are asking the critical, critical question right now. How do I cultivate a conscience that is captive to the Word of God? I want that. How do I get it? two ways. One is to read the Bible every day, proactively, so not just when you're looking for something, but just go reading it through. Maybe use a yearly Bible plan and just read it straight through over and over and over again. Um, Learn it, soak in it, live in it so much that it's your world that you uh, exist in. Over time of doing that, you'll start to hear God's voice more and more, know what God's voice sounds like, and then when you hear the voice of your conscience, you can know whether it lines up with God's voice or not. Second way to, captivate, uh, to cultivate a captive conscience is in those situations when you have a specific moral or ethical question that you're wrestling with. So, um, for example, um, should I work on Sundays? My boss wants me to work on Sundays. Is that okay? Um, we're thinking about buying a second home on the lake. Is that okay? I'm a dad, and I want to know what role is a dad supposed to play in the lives of his kids? Those kind of questions. Instead of just trusting your conscience, which we've already seen can fail us, go to God's Word for answers to those questions. Seek out the answers in Scripture. And some of you might feel like, well, I can't. I don't know where to start looking for the questions that I have. Um, That's why we've got the body of Christ around us, first of all, and you've got pastors who would love to help you through those questions. But also, in this day and age, there's a lot of great resources that can help you find it. So two that I go to all the time are the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. Both of those are websites, the Gospel Coalition Desiring God, that if you just search there the topic that you're wrestling with, you can find some helpful guides to search through the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about the question that you're dealing with at any given moment. Um, if we live that way both proactively reading every day and going to the scripture for specific questions that we have, then our conscience starts to get shaped over time, reshaped. And it becomes more reliable as a guide because it's becoming increasingly aligned with God's word. So we want a clear conscience. We've seen the value of that. We want a captive conscience. We've seen the value of that. Uh, I want to finish up just with a short case study uh, that maybe will tie this together. I want it to come straight from the text, so we're going to use the same case that Paul's dealing with in Acts 23 verses 1 through 5, and it's respect for those in authority. Respect for those in authority. Um, What happens when we're under the authority of someone who's not using their authority consistently with what the Word of God says? That's what Paul was dealing with here, and it's what many of us deal with from time to time. It would be interesting to see a show of hands. We won't do it, but who's had the experience of uh, your conscience telling you, you know what, you have to speak up right now. Your boss, your supervisor, your governor, your president, your pastor, they're wrong. You have to speak out right now. That's the experience Paul was having in our text, wasn't it? This person said something to him, the high priest, and he felt like he had to speak out. So we have that conscience speaking. But then on the flip side, we have what... Was brought up in the scripture here that we are called by scripture to give respect to those in authority so what do we do then what do we do in that situation if we keep silent then our conscience will eat at us and eat at us and eat at us and not let us go if we speak evil of a ruler of our people of someone who's in leadership of us then even if our consciences are clear we find ourselves in sin so what do we do There's got to be a third way, right? And maybe the third way, based on this text, is something like this. Maybe we can name the injustice. We can bring it to light. But we can do so without speaking evil of the one who carried out the injustice, who was responsible for it, the person in leadership. I think our denomination did this very well recently. um, When they put out a statement a couple weeks ago, some of you saw it, about the recent immigration questions that have come up. Uh, You can find it on the EFCA website, efca.org. It's called Immigration and Zero Tolerance. But our denomination put out this statement, and without slandering the president or any leaders in the Justice Department, um, they lamented the state of affairs of parents being separated from children and called for those involved to seek a more just solution To the problem. In doing so, our denomination joined the chorus of Christian leaders around the world from every denomination who are decrying this situation and lamenting it and fighting for the family, but did so without smearing or denigrating, as so many in the world are prone to do, right? Um, Maybe that's a model. Maybe that's a model for how we can do this. Speaking out about injustice, but doing so in a way that's honoring to those who are in authority and to the positions that they hold. Um, Now, I want to just anticipate a question before we wrap up. A question might be, at this point, for somebody who's well-versed in Scripture, doesn't Paul handle this situation differently from how Jesus did? After all, they both stood in front of the same Sanhedrin, They both endured an unjust trial in front of those Sanhedrin. But whereas Paul spoke up and called out injustice that was taking place, Jesus was more or less silent in the face of his accusers, right? So was Paul wrong? When Paul and Jesus act differently in the same situation, shouldn't we go with Jesus? It's an important question. Um, I think we need to remember that the full story about Jesus is a little more nuanced than that, right? Jesus, uh, when he stood before the Sanhedrin, was standing there as the Messiah, as the servant of the Lord, of whom many, many prophecies had been uttered generations ago, saying that this Messiah, this servant of the Lord, was going to endure justice without complaint, and like a sheep before his shearers was going to be silent, In that way, Jesus was playing a unique and unrepeatable role as he stood before the Sanhedrin. There is no universal call that we can see in Scripture to remain silent in the face of injustice. It's also important to remember that Jesus wasn't always silent about injustice, was he? Yes, at the end of his life, he was silent in the court of Herod. But think about what he said about Herod before that point during his life and ministry. He told at least one parable, maybe more that were uh, subtly alluding to blunders that Herod had made. And when people told him that Herod was trying to kill him, do you remember the name that Jesus said to refer to Herod? He said, go and tell that fox. And then left a message for him. Um, and just so we know, Jesus wasn't saying that Herod was a good-looking guy when he called him a fox. A fox in that time was something that was used to mean somebody slanderous, somebody, somebody treacherous. It was a negative term for sure. Um, so maybe jesus and paul aren't so out of line. I guess is what i'm saying and Uh, maybe there's something in what paul does here that can be a guide for us bottom line is next time Your conscience you feel your conscience Provoking you to get on social media and you just have to say something about some injustice That our government is perpetrating or that our president is perpetrating remember from this text you might be right. That might be your conscience. But let's stand out. Let's stand out because we refuse to call out injustice without showing respect for the office of the leader in question. Let's refuse to speak evil of the ruler of our people because as much as our consciences might tell us to do that, we're not a people governed by our consciences ultimately. We're a people who shape our consciences, allow our consciences to be shaped By the word of God, the word that says, Do not speak ill of the ruler of your people. So, our big idea today is just this let's strive for a clear conscience that is captive to the word of God. Let's strive for that. Now, you don't get that clear and captive conscience by just pushing guilt out of your mind when it comes in. That's not how you get it. You don't get a clear and captive conscience by trying to do a bunch of good things to make up for the bad things that you've done. You don't get a clear and captive conscience by mustering up the willpower to do better tomorrow. You get a clear and captive conscience by throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed to wash away your sin and mine. Some of you here this morning haven't ever experienced that gift of a clear conscience. Maybe your whole life you've been trying to numb that guilty conscience, in your mind, trying to push it down, suppress it, and maybe you've had some limited success convincing yourself that, hey, I'm actually not that bad. It's not as bad as my conscience says it is, because look around me, there's a lot of people worse than me. But then there's that nagging voice. It persists in your mind, saying there's something wrong. Not all is well. Um, You're not in the clear. There's a debt Hanging over your head, the voice says, and it's greater than that $3 parking ticket. According to God, as we saw today, that voice that's nagging at you, telling you that everything's not right, that voice is actually right. It's your conscience, and God, as a matter of fact, was the one who put it there in your head to steer you to himself so that you might seek him and eventually find him. You can make all the changes you want for the rest of your life trying to soothe your guilty conscience and make it go away apart from God But because of how God designed you and me That guilty guilty conscience is still going to be there But this morning if you're here and you can still sense that guilty conscience If you can still feel bad about your sin as you come here this morning There's still hope for you You haven't yet suppressed your conscience beyond hope you can still use that conscience to direct you to the God who made you and loves you and put that conscience there to direct you to himself. That God, friends, that God who made us and made our consciences, he is our only hope, the only solution to our guilty consciences. Every other founder of every world religion stands before us and says, ease your guilty conscience by living this certain way. But it's only Jesus, among all the founders of all the world religions, who says, ease your guilty conscience because look at how I lived. It's only in Christianity that our conscience is cleared, not by balancing the scales or by doing enough good to outweigh the bad, but rather by God coming as a human being in the flesh to erase the debt that we owed when he paid that debt on our behalf. That's what Jesus did. God, in human flesh, when he came on that cross, and because of what he did on that cross, there's no outstanding parking ticket anymore for you or for me, no matter what you've done or no matter what I've done. Jesus died to pay the cost so that our consciences might be clear as we live before God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that good news. Thank you for the good news that... Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came and died for us to pay the debt, to wash us clean, to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Lord, those who are here this morning who do know you, And have a relationship with you, but nonetheless have guilty consciences. Help them not to leave with a guilty conscience this morning, but help them to throw themselves on you, repent of their sin, and claim your forgiveness for that sin. And those of you who are here here this morning who have not yet come to know you, Lord, we ask that their hearts will be stirred and moved, even this morning, to do some business with you before they leave here and get that clear conscience that they've been wanting all their life because of what you did On their behalf, not because of what anything they could do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I love it when we get a chance to put our